Well, last week in, in, in 33, we've been working for 32, 33, and 34 kind of go together in Exodus in this tighten it in a little narrative. And in, in 32, we have Moses coming down the mountain after spending time with God on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And he comes down to hear the people singing praises and worshiping a false god, this golden calf. Moses throw down, throws down the tablets that God has written for the people and proceeds to punish the nation of Israel. In verse 32, we don't get a clear picture of Israel's repentance. In fact, in verse 32, we see Israel being confronted with their sin and then going off the complete deep end in their sin. But it's in verse in chapter 33 that we get to discover this incredible repentance of the, the people of Israel, that God says, you are a stiff-necked people. I am not going before you. I'm going to give you your way. Fine, you build yourself an idol to lead yourself, but I am not going before you. And the Israelites realize that they have sinned to this point where God will not go with them. And they realize that if God does not go before them, if God does not go with them, then they need to stay put because they're devastated, they're destroyed where they're at. And so they repent. They are despondent. We used the word last week, despondent over sin. And, and we talked about despondent being a strong word of emotion that when faced with their sin, they are broken, they are hurting, they are disgusted with themselves in the midst of their sin. They're despondent. And they're supposed to become desperate for God. And we see this desperation for God as Moses speaks to God and says, we're not going anywhere without you. You know, it's maybe one of those, if y'all watched or maybe you've heard somebody say, with all due respect, God, we're not going anywhere unless you go with us, right? But as I was talking with, with Glenn this week um, during our DNA time and meeting together, and um, we're, we've been going through James together as men, and there was something that's been striking me a little bit. Um, Robert has encouraged me to journal, um, and I confess to you, Robert, this morning I have not been journaling. Um, because when I started, um, the only thing that would flow out of me was my failures. Every time I sat down to write, all I could write about is where I failed and where I'd messed up from childhood, teenage years, young adult. And so I just stopped. I was not going to do that. I couldn't handle it. I was like, why am I going to just sit here and and I was living in this kind of false humility of, well, you're, you're, you're despondent over your sin, right? Well, when I was spending time with Glenn this week and over this last couple of weeks, God's just been working on my heart out of Exodus, realizing that's not being despondent over my sin. That's worshiping my sin because I'm not seeing the victorious story that God told in spite of those events. I wasn't desperate for God. Because if I was truly despondent over my sin when back when I was a kid and I did things that I shouldn't have done and as a teenager and a young adult and, 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 and on into married life and now, if I'm truly despondent, then I would want to be desperate for God to redeem those situations. And why do I start there this morning? I start there this morning before we can, I've entitled this sermon today, A Fresh Start. Before we can have this fresh start in God, before we can have this time of renewed relationship with God, we've got to first be desperate for God to redeem our brokenness. Because if we're still worshiping our sin, if we're still worshiping those areas we've messed up or have this false humility towards it, 
then we're not desperate for God to redeem it and make us new. And so we're not going to experience that fresh relationship that we can have in him. You see, the Israelite people, they were broken over their sin, but they were desperate to have God lead them. They were desperate for God to go before them. It's quite literally like saying, you know, God, I'm not getting out of bed this morning unless you get out of bed before me. God, I'm not going into the kitchen to make breakfast this morning unless, God, you go before me. God, I'm not about ready to have that first conversation with my wife this morning or my kids this morning unless you go before me. This idea and this understanding that we are desperate to have God go before us and redeem every situation and circumstance in our life. Because when we have that heart, when we do have that desire to see God reigning and ruling in our lives and be desperate for God, then we have this opportunity to have this amazing, fresh start and renewed relationship with God. Exodus 34, starting in in verse 1 this morning, God is speaking to Moses. And the one thing I want to point out to you, and it's one of those things that we can gloss over as we read a text pretty quickly, but I would encourage you to underline this morning, is that this portion that the Lord said to Moses, who initiates, who starts this renewed relationship? God, the Lord does. The Lord says to Moses, go cut out some new tablets. We're not done yet, okay? I've heard you cry. I've heard your, your intercession for the people. We're not done here yet, so go cut out some new, new tablets. And what's really cool, and this is just how God works, the same verbiage here that's used for cutting out the stones is the same verbiage that's used for creating the graven image. God is even redeeming and restoring the language of the Bible where they, at one hand, they were cutting out this image of God. Aaron is molding this image of this calf. He's hewing this image of the calf out. But God is saying, no, go cut out yourselves tablets of stone and redeeming the language even in this moment. And he tells Moses, be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. Moses goes to the top of the mountain, but did he reach God? Moses climbed to the top of the mountain. Did he reach God? No. No, he did not. What did God have to do? God had to descend. God had to come down to interact with Moses. And brothers and sisters, we've got to start there this morning with our understanding of how much God loves us and desires to be in relationship with us, that God condescends to us. God descends to us. God descends to Moses. And we see the greatest imagery of God's descension to us, coming down to us as it talks about in the Gospels, about the birth of Jesus Christ, when Jesus Christ became fully God, fully man, God stepped down and became walked amongst us. God loves us. He desires a renewed relationship with us. Verse 3, no one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets out of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took his hand on two tablets of stone. 
So God reiterates instructions to Moses. Uh, previously, what was stated in regards to when to Moses was going to go up in the mountain. What's very interesting here is God says in verse 1, I will write on the tablets the words that were, first, were on the first tablets which you broke. But in verse 27 of, of Exodus 34, we read that Moses wrote them down. So what is it? Did God write it or did Moses write it? Well, the answer is yes. You see, the world wants to tell you that because men wrote the books of the Bible, they're not trustworthy. You can't trust them. They're not authoritative, right? But when we understand how God wrote the books of the Bible, God spoke them. All words are God-breathed to men, and men wrote them down in accordance with what God told them, faithfully trustworthy. You see, we can trust our scriptures. They are from God, and they are wonderfully preserved for us. Think about the thousands of years that the word of God has been preserved so you and I can sit here, open them up on a Sunday morning and read, and hopefully open them up throughout the rest of the week and read God's word. We have no idea what a blessing this is. We're spoiled. We've got it on our phones. We can, oh, I need the, I need, I need the word of God. Okay, hold on. Five seconds or 30 seconds, depending upon your Wi-Fi connection, right? You're downloading the Word of God. You've got it. You know, but not yet a hundred years ago, to have a Bible in your home was very treasured and very valued. How do you know? Because how faithfully Bibles were handed down from, it was a, it was a symbol of heritage handed down to the next generation, to the next generation. And some of you may have Bibles that your grandparents or great-grandparents gave you. They were precious. But now we treat the word of God with such flippancy, like, oh, it's, we collect dust on our shelves more than when they're opened in red. It is God's love gift to us so that we might know him. How can we enter into this God-initiated, renewed relationship with him if we're not in the word? It's impossible. God loves us so much, he gave us this book so that we might know him. God is the one who initiates this renewed relationship. God is still in the business of initiating renewed relationship with us. I don't think anybody in here would argue, and if we do, we can have a conversation afterwards, that we're all sinners in here. We've often said that the church is not um, a place for healthy people, but a place, the church is a hospital. We're, we're sick people. And, and so it's very interesting to me when, People come into a church and they're like, I can't go to a church. They're full of broken people. Exactly. We sure are. We're broken people and we're desperate in need of God. And sometimes in our relationship with God, we go down roads and we go down travels in our lives that, that, that take us in rebellion against God. We find something that we want to worship and we pursue it so hard. And we've talked a lot about over the last couple of days, idols in our lives. And we, we know God is convicting our hearts, but we just still pursue this idol. And even in the face of, of conviction, we push hard against God and we walk away. But I believe, based upon my theological convictions, that when the Holy Spirit, when we trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells in us. And, and the scriptures use this word meno, which, which means to remain or abide. And God abides within us. He remains within us. And that though there are times in our lives when we are not walking with God, the spirit remains. And if you're a child of God, you get that wonderful prick of conviction. Anybody feel the prick of conviction in your life? 
I'm the only one. Okay. <clears throat> we get that prick of conviction in our lives. And while at that time it's not fun, it's good. It's what we need. And the Holy Spirit convicts our hearts. And God pursues us to draw us back. Because when you're part of the family of God, and you, you're pursued and you're drawn back to remain part of that family. So God initiates, continues to initiate that renewed relationship. It's kind of like this, you know, for those of us who have kids or were a kid once, which would put us all in that category. When my kids mess up and they sin, um, we have our kids come to us and we talk about it and seek forgiveness and, and seek repentance, right? And ask mom and dad that they're sorry. Well, my kids don't say that they're sorry to me so that they'll become a Morris again. Well, they're my kids. They'll always be my kids. But they, they say that they're, they're sorry so that we might renew and restore that relationship. You see, the Holy Spirit is in the business of getting hold of our hearts and drawing us back so that we'll come back to the Father and we'll say, Lord, Father, I am sorry. And Jesus Christ says they're under the blood because I have found favor in your eyes. Forgive them. And we have this renewed relationship with God. See, God not only saves us, he even pursues us when we're in rebellion. Do you feel loved yet? Do you feel treasured? It's the story of Jesus, right? Got the 99 and one runs astray. And what does he do? He leaves the 99 to go after the one. God is showing himself this compassionate, merciful God to the people of Israel. I'm going to pursue you. I'm going to initiate this renewed relationship with you. In verse 5, and this is where we get this understanding that the Lord descended in the cloud. God came down to be with Moses. Moses could never go to where God is at. God has to come and be with him. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Now, this is very interesting. What does he proclaim? He proclaims his name. And we talk about do not take the, the name of the Lord your God in vain. And we're going to see why here. God is going to define himself. When the name Yahweh, when the name of the Lord is proclaimed, there comes with a meaning and power. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord. Now, what is God doing here? Just repeating himself? Maybe it's is, is it just for, for punctuation, like an exclamation point? No, what he is saying is the Lord I am the Lord, I will define myself because no one else can define me. And let me tell you something, that is so true. God is God because he says he is God. He doesn't need you or me to tell him he's God. He's God without our acknowledgement of his lordship, of his deity. And he is the only one that can define himself. He is the only one that can reveal himself to us so that we might understand him and draw near to him. And so this is such a gracious gift from God. God is going to tell Moses, I am the Lord. I am your God, and this is who I am. And if I would love it if you all just circled this passage in the Bible. You just circled this verses 5 to 8 right here, and you just circled that, or 5 to 7, and you, you actually went home, and you put it on a postcard, and you stuck it in your mirror, or you stuck it in your car. Because we need to be reminded way more often of who God is. We're not reminded of it enough. And God, who is God? He says, first of all, he is merciful. Merciful. He is compassionate. God cares about 
our situations in life. God cares about what you're going through right now. He is present with you. How do we know that? Psalm 103.13, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. This morning as I was having my time with God, I'm reading through the Bible in a year, and one of the passages that I was on this morning was so fitting. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, or excuse me, starting in verse 17, this is speaking about Jesus Christ here. He says, therefore, he, being Jesus Christ, had to be made like his brothers in every respect. God became man. God came down. So that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help all those who are being tempted. Jesus Christ himself, came down and was merciful, demonstrated mercy to us so that we might know what mercy looks like. And we have Jesus Christ who is merciful and compassionate towards us, being tempted, suffering, like we are tempted in suffering. The next thing we need God reveals about himself is he's gracious. Gracious carries with it this terminology of undeserved favor. We have undeserved favor with God because of his character, because of who he is. We don't deserve to be called children of God. We don't deserve to be called part of the family of God. But because of God's character and who he is, he extends grace towards us. And through Jesus Christ, we're brought into the family of God. God is slow to anger. Oh, we see this in Exodus. God has put up with a lot from the nation of Israel. In fact, as I'm reading through the, the prophets and, and also in 2 Kings, if you've never read through 2 Kings, you, you, you might want to take, what, what are those the antidepressant pills? Um, you might want to take a few of those because it's, it's, it's kind of, it's hard. You read about the Israelite kings in the northern kingdom and it says, this king did evil inside of the Lord and this king did evil inside of the Lord and this king did evil inside of the Lord and like, Okay, God, when are you going to have enough of these kings and nuke these guys? Really? Why doesn't God step in sooner? Because he is slow to anger because our God desires that people would repent and turn from their sin. God is so long-suffering and so patient because he wants to see people bow their knee before him, confess their sin, and turn from him. Hosea 14, reading in Hosea right now. Hosea, I mean, it's this incredible story of how God is, is going to judge the nation of Israel for their disobedience. But in verse 14, verse 1, it starts out with, but if they would only repent, none of this is going to happen. God is so slow to anger. Why does God not just crack the sky and take us all home right now? 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That is our God. Our God is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. 
This word here is the same word that's used in Psalm 136. Psalms 136 is, is that one psalm where it says an attribute of God and his steadfast love endures forever. It says another line, and his steadfast love endures forever. And it says another line. And, and when you're reading this psalm, by about verse 3, you're going, okay, I've got it. His steadfast love endures forever, right? And verse 4, okay, I've got it. But all of a sudden, by the time you reach verse 9, you're going, say it again. His steadfast love endures forever. And, and studying the New Testament in Hebrews 10, 29, Spirit of Grace, I wrote my thesis, if you ever need anything to fall to sleep with, I can be happy to give you my thesis. It'll be great snooze stuff, okay? You'll get through two pages and be asleep, right? I did my thesis on that, that this fact, this understanding that as we understand grace in the New Testament, God's unmerited favor towards us, that the closest Old Testament word that resembles that is this word here for steadfast love. It's God's covenanting love. It's God coming down to be in relationship with us, a broken, messed up people, and pouring out his love on us. And that that love is unmerited favor towards us because we do nothing to deserve it. But God covenants, he contracts, he enters into relationship with us. How amazing is that? God is faithful. This word can also mean truth or truthfulness. God is, follows through with his love. You can bank on God's love. Now, when we think of love, oftentimes in today's society, we think of that cute little love that, you know, we got a new puppy and we're going to love our puppy, right? Play with our puppy and pet our puppy and, and, and you know, kiss, let the puppy lick your face. Don't ever expect me to do that, okay? But, but just like, right? You know, I mean, that's, oh, such cute. But, but the thing about it is God's love is love when we're receiving blessing, but it's also love when we're receiving punishment. You see, God's love is always, when the way God acts is always with his love. He is faithful to us, and then no matter what he does, he is acting according to his love towards us. And sometimes that's, but it's always what we need. And sometimes we need a swift kick in the backside. And God will love us that way. And sometimes we need to be encouraged and lift up and exhorted. And God will love us that way. God loves us at all times in the ways we need to be loved because he is the faithful one. But notice he goes on and says he's also the one who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And so these are three different words for, for messing up. The word here for he is forgives iniquity means that one turns aside from what is right or what is good. When you and I do stuff that we know we shouldn't do, great news, God's in the business of forgiving you if you repent. And then God ratcheted it up a notch. He goes, and transgression, transgression is the willful violation of the terms of the covenant involving not merely disobeying a rule or regulation, but betraying the relationship one has with the covenant king. God's in the business of forgiving that too. As demonstrated to the Israelites as they have just broken the covenant. And then just in case you're thinking you're, well, I've never iniquitized and I've never transgressed eyes, right? Then I made those up, okay. Oh, all right. You're not going to find those. But if, you, if you've ever had, didn't it fall in the category iniquity or transgression, God says, and any other moral failure, crud, that's all of us. But the great news is, 
God forgives. I am fairly confident that there are some here this morning that are still trying to beat themselves up over their sin. in order to show God that you're truly sorry. But what God says is he's in the business of forgiving your sin. And that the way to show God you're sorry is to repent. To not let go of it, not to hold on to it like some sick treasured item. God is in the business of forgiving us and he just wants us to repent and confess. Of the one person in the Bible said that he was a man after God's own heart was King David. King David sinned egregiously against God. How in the world could a man sin so egregiously against God and called a man after God's own heart? In fact, all the other kings of Judah are compared to David and said they either did it right like David or they didn't do it right like David. Because David repented. David confessed and he was broken before God over his sin. You see, the standard isn't perfection. The standard is grace. And none of us could come up with that standard. It had to be given to us. But when we don't repent of our sin, we oppose the standard of grace. And it's so freeing this passage is about renewed relationship and freedom in God. If we just repent and confess. The passage goes on to say here in verse 7, keeping steadfast love for thousands, keep forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity on the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation Brothers and sisters, our sin carries the penalty of death. And we just kept handing it off and kept handing it off and kept handing it off until there was one who came who could bear the guilt of our sin. It is in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is not only the perfect demonstration and the revelation of God, his compassion, his mercy, his grace, his slow to anger, his steadfast love. He's not just a perfect example of all those things and of his character, but he is also the one through which God poured out his wrath so that we could no longer be guilty of our sin and our children no longer guilty of our sin and our children's children no longer guilty of their sin. But it is in Jesus Christ. So he's not only the perfect living example of who God is, he is also the holiness of God for us. So that we can be forgiven. I love Moses' response. Moses, is, can you only imagine being up on the mountaintop with, with God and hearing God say these things? And when God says this, I love what Moses said. Here, if you've got a pen, underline this. In verse 8, and Moses quickly, underline that, Moses hits the deck face down before God. God has just defined himself. God has just revealed himself to Moses. And the only place Moses can 
respond is face down before God in worship to God. I'm not going to ask for us to show our hands. But I am convicted by the thought of how many of us in the room have been so faced by the power and the might and the majesty of God that it forced us to go face first down on the ground before God. Because you know, properly, that's the only position that really, really should be in when before God. Have you ever got on your face before God and saying, God, I can't even stand up right now because your holiness and your graciousness and your gloriness is just so overwhelming me. I'm frozen here and I just want to worship you here and I just want to remain here for however long I can remain here. And if you haven't, why? I would probably tend to argue that the reason we don't do that is because God is this big. And he's far off and he's distant. He's not really present with us. He is right here, right now. And he knows every thought that is running through our minds right here. And that's terrifying. And some of us should be repenting right now. He is present with us. He is gracious and compassionate and merciful and holy. Do we sing like that? Do we, the creed, that is the truth of God, who he is. Do we read it as if something we just do every week and blah, 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 blah. Or do we like, man, this is my God. And he's made himself known to us. And he wants to be in relationships with us when even we've sinned and we've rebelled against him that he's going, I love you and I'm drawing you back. I'm loving you so much that I poured out my wrath on my son so that you can be my child and be in relationship with me. Come on. He loves us. Moses hits the deck and he says, if I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. And what, what Jesus is doing for us right now is saying this. Jesus is turning to the Father and he is saying to the, fa- to the Father, Father, if I have found favor in your sight, then save my people. Please let the Lord go in the midst of us. God, be with us. Be present in every area and every aspect of our lives. For it is a stiff-necked people. Pardon our iniquity and our sin. Notice Moses is including in him himself in this. And this is the most mind-blowing thing. Moses says, take us for your inheritance. Now, when you think of an inheritance, how many of you would think about an inheritance as like a fertilizer farm, like, like a pile of poo. How many of you would love a pile of poo for, for your inheritance? If you, grandma and grandpa gave you, well, I've got this great pile of poo that I'm giving to you, right? You'd be like, what is that? We want gold and silver. We want to not have to work less because of our inheritance. Let me tell you what, God inherits us, and he has to send his son, Jesus Christ, to the cross. That's what it looks like for us to become God's inheritance. We're of no worth and no value to God. But he, he loves us and he draws us into a relationship with him and we become his inheritance. Mind-blowing. I mean, I should probably drop the mic and walk out at this point. 
How in the world? Why? Why does God do this? Verse 10. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as not been created in all the earth or in any nation, and all the people among whom you are, you shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Romans 16, 26 says, so that all the nations might believe and obey. Why is God doing this? Why is God drawing a broken people? Why is God inheriting a worthless inheritance? Why is God doing this? So that the world will know him. Reading a great book, um, War of Words, by Paul David Tripp. It's been a very convicting book. It's about God's um, redeeming our communication issues. And it's not talking about like communications class for my students in the room. But it got way more to do with how we interact with one another and how we speak to one another, how we talk with one another. He writes in this book, we must never think of ourselves as objects of his covenantal love without also thinking of ourselves as the conduits of that love to others. God isn't drawing us back into relationship with him so we can be merely the object of God's affection. I mean, we want to think like that. God loves me so much, and he did all this just for me. He actually did it, yes, for you, but not that you would be the sole object of his love, but rather for my plumbers and my, my electricians in here, you run electrical wires through the conduit, right? So that the con they will pass through. We are to be the conduit through which the world knows of God's graciousness, mercy, love, compassion, faithfulness, because we express that, we live that, and we are the conduits through the world sees that. God is renewing this relationship with the nation of Israel, not just for the nation of Israel, but for the whole entire world. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Why? So that God can make himself known to this world through your lives. It is such a cool thing that we get to be a part of. He also goes on to say here, we cannot treat salvation as a party where we are the honored guest. How many times do we think about that, about salvation? I got my get out of jail free card, right? Uh, God, thank you so much for saving me, right? It's so cool that you thought of me, you saved me. Yes, and you've been saved and called according to a purpose for the good works of God. He goes on to say here, it is a celebration for a king to which we have been graciously and amazingly invited. What we celebrate is not just our invitation. Hear that. What we celebrate is not just our invitation. We celebrate him. And we demonstrate our thanks by helping others come to know, serve, and celebrate him as well. 1 John 4, 9-12 
And this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Do you get it? You weren't given a renewed relationship with God just to be the recipient of it, the object of it. You were given this renewed relationship with God to worship God through letting other people know that they too can have that renewed relationship with God. God is a missional God. God's heart's desires, compassion that the world might know and worship him. It is the calling of scriptures. It's from Genesis to Revelation. It's all throughout the Bible. It is so exciting for us to be a part of that we are not called to be just merely the objects of salvation, but the conduits through which salvation is proclaimed. Isn't that cool? And the way we get to do this is by the way we pump gas, the way we buy groceries, the way we go to school, the way we're in clubs at school, the way we play sports, the way we respond to injury, the way we do all of these things in our lives is the ways in which we get to proclaim the gospel message of Jesus Christ. How do we know that? Great question, glad you asked. But before we get there, I need you to know one more thing about your God. He is a jealous God, and I'm going to briefly touch on this. And it's not a jealousy from which we normally think about jealousy. If you would write these two words in your Bible next to jealous, in verse, and if you're wondering where I'm at, we're in verse, and you shall tear it down, 14, verse 14. It says, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. Write these two words, fiercely protective. God is fiercely protective over you and I. J.I. Packer says, God's jealousy is not a compound of frustration, envy, and spite, as human jealousy so often is, but appears instead as a praiseworthy zeal to preserve something supremely precious. That's what you and I are in the sight of God, supremely precious. And so he does not, one us, and the scriptures tell us here as we go through this, he did not want the Israelites covenanting with the people of the land, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Perizzites, and the, and the uh, Hivites. He does not want them covenanting with them because he is a jealous God. He doesn't want their gods to become the Israelites' gods. But you and I, we've done this. I'm going to go after the men in the room. When it comes to our families, men, we have allowed stuff into our homes that allow us to covenant with evil by approving behaviors, by approving language. You know, the book, this book that I'm reading, how often in this world nowadays we believe that the biggest right we have is the right to say whatever is on our mind. Thank you, real world MTV. You guys even remember that? That was a long time ago for, you know, real world MTV, right? What did they do? So all these reality shows, right? You would normally never say the things that they say in a reality television to one another. You would never say that to a person. But all of a sudden, they took these individuals, stuck them in a closet, put a camera in their face, and said, 
What do you think about what they just did? And these people spew hatred and ugliness and bitterness. And all of a sudden, now the world's saying, my right, my greatest right that I've got is to say whatever the heck I want to say, whenever the heck I want to say it. And so instead of coming home when we've had a rough day at work and like saying, I am struggling and turning to our family saying, I'm struggling and trusting that God is a good provider right now because I'm so exhausted. I'm struggling that God is good or he's glorious or gracious. Instead of saying those things, we come home and say, my job sucks and I'm, we're never going to have enough money to pay for anything and we're going to be here all of our lives and we're so busy and what are our kids hearing? Where's, where's the trust of God in any of that? Instead of saying, you know what? I'm struggling now with trusting God and I got to confess my heart right now and all of a sudden now we're worshiping God but instead we worship our problems, we worship these other things but we're not praising God in our homes and we're covenanting. Now, what is our kid learning? Well, our kid's learning, well, it's okay for me to say those things. And, she, we turn, and when we're shocked, when our siblings, when the siblings come into the room and they turn to their, about their sister or their brother, you suck. The way you treat me is horrible. You say bad things all the time. And you're like, well, where does that come from? Well, what did you just come home and do? James was right. That tongue is a wicked thing. I recommend, if you are struggling with your tongue at all, good book. Convicting me deeply. God does not want us covenanting with things that bring damage and sin into our homes. He is a jealous God. This chapter concludes on an incredible, incredible high note. Moses comes down from the mountain in verse 29. When Moses came down from the mountain, Mount Sinai, with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know, this is so great, he did not know that the skin of his face shown because he had been talking with God. Okay, Moses was literally reflecting the Shekinah glory of God. Could you imagine like if, if Kathy Jones were to walk in right now and have like a 100 watt light bulb as a face, right? You're like, that's freaky. Turn that thing down, right? But that Moses is literally glowing. Moses has been in the presence of God. He is shining. He is reflecting the glory of God. And what's amazing about this passage is we'll learn in this passage if you read through it, that Moses, when he goes in before God, he takes the veil up that he has to put on because he's glowing all the time. And he spends time with God and he gets like recharged, right? And his face shines even brighter. And he goes out before the people. And how do the people know to listen to Moses? Because how bright his face is shining, okay? Shining face. They listen to him. Okay, that's God's commandment to us. We're supposed to obey. We're supposed to listen and hear what you're saying. And then he puts the veil back down because they just couldn't handle it. It was freaking them out too much. Well, what a great picture for us to spend time with God and to shine God's radiant love back to the world. And how does the world know that they should listen to us? How does the world know that they should hear the message we have? Because they see the glory of God shining through us in the way we act and the way we speak. And they're like, you're a freak, but I like your message. You're a freak, but I like the way you love me because that's not... Let me, let me tell you what, where we stand as a culture, and I know I'm running out of time, and I apologize. We stand as a culture like this. Because of science and evolution and, and natural selection, love has been reduced to the firing of neurons. Okay? What do I mean by that? That some time ago in our prehistoric history, when we were evolving as human beings, and you'd think I'm joking, this is what scientists believe now, 
that sometime in that time period, during the period of natural selection and, and the, right, the, the survival of the fittest, that love somehow helped them to survive. And so and that survival mechanism, this firing of neuron that they called love, helped them to survive from this period and move forward. And so now love is merely, now, now love isn't really an emotion that we can all feel. It's just a firing of neurons that benefits us. And when it no longer benefits us, then it can be dismissed because we no longer feel that emotion and that neuron isn't firing anymore. So love isn't something that is, that is true, that is faithful, and that is steadfast. Like God talks about love. Love is merely just an emotion that it flickers and goes. Kids are being taught this. Colleges, philosophy classes are putting this out there. And so can you imagine love has no value? How desperately the world needs to see us shining and reflecting the love of God. Loving people who there's no benefit, it seems, to love them. And if we think, well, I can't get involved in the messiness of people. Are you kidding me? We're the inheritance of God. Just think about that for a second. We're the inheritance of God. We can get involved in messiness of people's lives. We can love people that it's really of no benefit for us to love and then demonstrate the power and the love of God. See, that's what's exciting. Is that as we live out this renewed relationship with God, we get to reflect who God is. There's an old Christian t-shirt. Maybe you've seen it. Be the moon, reflect the sun. And sun is spelled S-O-N. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, our valley, our community needs to encounter Jesus Christ. An encounter carries this great definition of an unexpected experience. When people leave out of their houses and they come to the grocery store and they bump into you and you're going to the grocery line at the same time and you're going, oh, please go before me. And they've got like 50 items in your cart and you've got like two. But we give them that right away. They unexpectedly encounter Jesus Christ and we're reflecting the glory of God. Isn't that cool? We get to live this way for God every single day. Life matters. All of life matters because we get to reflect the glory of God in all of it. Please join with me in prayer. Father God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your incredible love and grace that you show to us. Your long-suffering, your slow to anger. You are the standard of holiness that we can never be. You provide grace that we are in so desperate need of. You pursue us, God. You love us and you pursue us in spite of us. And Lord, that means we can get uncomfortable for you and we could be that glowing radiance of your love to Shalane Valley. And Lord, I pray right now, Lord God, that this would study of Exodus would be something that continues to work within us and in our hearts. The Holy Spirit works this out in us that we would realize that this valley should look different because Living Stone Church has been gathering together, studying Exodus and growing in the Lord together. We should look different 
because we're gathering during the week in smaller settings and, and encouraging each other to walk in you. Thank you, Lord, for loving us so much. In Jesus' name we pray and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.